I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, everybody. Today's show is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. You see, Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses that are a fraction of the price of mattresses one can purchase in the store. The mattress industry has, for too long, forced consumers to pay notoriously high markups, and Casper has had enough. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of their mattresses through cutting up the middleman, the retailer, and selling directly to you, the consumer. Now, you see, for years, I've had trouble finding a mattress that has the perfect blend of bounce and stiffness until I finally received my own Casper mattress. Casper mattresses provide resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort, and this has literally changed the quality of my sleep overnight. Ha! A hybrid sleeping product that combines premium memory foam with latex foam, it has become the most awarded mattress of the last decade. Uh, mattresses start at $500, and they go as high as $950 for a California king-size mattress. These are great prices. If you, like me, are tired of expensive mattresses not actually making your quality of sleep any better, it is incumbent upon you, my friend, to go out and get one. Casper mattresses are easy to purchase, and you can do so risk-free. Casper offers free delivery right to your door, and if you are not satisfied with your purchase, you can return it within a hundred days at no cost. Let's be honest, guys and girls, lying on a mattress for a couple of minutes in a showroom is simply not enough time to tell if that is the right mattress for you. Now, Casper is willing to give the listeners of Cool Canadian History $50 off their first purchase. All you need to do is go to the link caspertrial.com slash history. That's Casper, C-A-S-P-E-R, trial, T-R-I-A-L dot com slash history. Get your purchase, get your mattress, sleep better now. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today, Season 4, Episode 12, The Riot Heard Round the World, the 1907 Vancouver Anti-Asian Riot. In the fall of 1907, thousands of angry white British Columbians marched through the streets of Vancouver to protest the continued settlement of people from China and Japan within the city. 
What began as an angry march quickly escalated into open mob violence as the crowd surged into Chinatown and Japantown, destroying property and engaging in physical altercations with local inhabitants. The anti-Asian riot of 1907 became a key moment in early British Columbian and Canadian immigration policy. Today's book recommendation is John Price's Orienting Canada, Race, Empire, and the Trans-Pacific. This book takes an in-depth look at the growing globalization of Canada in the early 20th century as it comes to terms with its obvious Pacific connections. Price connects events in Asia and the rest of the Pacific world to developments within Canada and the United States. Thus, he presents a unique, globalized perspective on Canada's early 20th century development. And this book was published in 2011 by UBC Press. Now, to tell this story, we need to go back almost a decade before the riot. The end of the 20th century saw Canada experiencing the largest economic boom in its young history. The massive developments in industrial machinery and technology that had kick-started Europe's economies had finally spread across all of the country. British Columbia was aptly suited to this industrial revolution within Canada, as the province relied heavily on the exploitation of its natural resources for economic survival. Thus, this radical industrial transformation saw the emergence of new industries while dramatically transforming the older ones. New, powerful mechanical pumps increased the ability for mining activity to go deeper and to access more hostile terrain. Power saws suddenly made the cutting down of trees far easier, thus rapidly expanding the logging industry. Refrigeration transformed the fishing and cattle industries, as food could now be shipped all over the world without fear of spoiling. Even the small farming industry in B.C. suddenly received a boost, with new mechanical inventions allowing B.C. produce, fruit in particular, to expand its shipping throughout Canada and the United States. Now, at the same time that these dramatic industrial transformations were occurring in the country, the country was also experiencing dramatic population growth. Hundreds of thousands of people were arriving on the shores of Halifax and Montreal and migrating into the interior where cheap land was widely available for settlement. This meant a growing demand on the prairies for natural resources, resources that existed in great quantities in B.C. Coal, timber, and fish all were sent to the prairies in greater and greater numbers. Between 1881 and 1901, Canada's population increased from 3.6 million to just over 5 million. Though even by 1901, 88% of Canada's population was either of British or French descent. Yet, with more and more people arriving, this demographic makeup was undergoing a slow transformation and started to include people from all over the wider world. For Canadians of British and French descent, life was certainly getting better, but for more specific minority groups, legal changes were actually making their lives worse. Canada's Aboriginal population, for instance, suffered under the Oppressive Indian Act, which sought to forcibly assimilate the Indigenous population into mainstream white Canada. As well, once the Canadian Pacific Railway was completed, that's Canada's first transcontinental railway, 
whose British Columbia line was built largely on the backs of Chinese immigrant labor, once this CPR line was completed, the Canadian government imposed a head tax on Chinese immigrants. This head tax was continually increased, beginning at $50 and eventually reaching the astounding number of 500, effectively stopping Chinese immigration by the 1920s. African Americans coming from the United States continually came up against legal obstacles to their immigration into Canada, specifically within Alberta, while various religious groups, such as the Nucabors, were subject to intense discrimination. Much of this hostility was rooted in the belief in social Darwinism. This was a racist, fake science that sought to use elements of Darwin's evolutionary theory to argue for a biological hierarchy of the races, with the white race on top. Within the white race, the Anglo-Saxons were seen as the very top of the hierarchy, while at the bottom were Southern Europeans and Irish. Non-white groups occupied rungs lower on the social Darwinian ladder, with indigenous peoples being at the very bottom. The greatest fear for social Darwinists was the potential mixing of the races, something that they believed would dilute the supposed superior biology of the white race. This ardent belief in social Darwinism acted for many as a scientific justification for the various racist attitudes and discriminatory policies of the day within Canada and much of the Western world. So, we have rapid industrial transformation, great population growth, leading to dramatic change coupled with an inherent cultural racism. This is a recipe for great anxiety amongst the dominant Anglo-Saxon culture. Now, what made British Columbia so unique was its geographical position on the Pacific Ocean. It was, of course, a natural arrival place for people from all over the Pacific world, seeking to live within the British Empire, including those from continental India, as well as China and Japan. The Chinese were, in fact, some of the first non-white immigrants to arrive on B.C.'s shores. In the late 1850s and 1860s, when B.C. was simply a colony of the British Empire, hundreds, if not thousands of Chinese, accurate statistics were not kept at the time, arrived in search of gold along the Fraser River and later up into the Caribou and then further north. By the 1870s, it was the promise of work on the transcontinental railway that brought Chinese migrants into B.C. in even larger numbers. Railway contractors, in fact, sought to recruit Chinese workers because they could pay these coolies, as they were known, half of what they could pay a white laborer. As well, frankly, there simply weren't enough people living in B.C. at the time to successfully supply the numbers needed for the hard and dangerous work of railway construction. After the railway was completed in 1885, as I mentioned earlier, the Canadian government and CPR contractors that had so aggressively recruited large numbers of Chinese laborers, upwards of 16,000, let them all go without a care in the world. Suddenly, one of the largest population groups in B.C. was unemployed. While many of the former employees of the CPR eventually found work within urban BC, often in the urban sections that were now becoming labeled as Chinatowns, many starved in the harsh rural environment of the province. To add to the tragedy, the Canadian government 
no longer needing Chinese labor, finally gave in to demands from BC's white population to stem Chinese immigration. Thus, a head tax of $50 was legislated into existence in late 1885. It is not a coincidence that the very same year the CPR was completed is the same year that the Chinese head tax was implemented. The Chinese were no longer needed to help build Canada's most ambitious infrastructure project, and thus it was time for them to go. Of course, it was not just the Chinese who were immigrating to BC during this period. In smaller, yet still significant numbers, were the Japanese. The first Japanese immigrant to arrive in BC was Manzo Nagano in 1877, and from then on, hundreds of mostly young Japanese men arrived on BC's shores every year. By 1907, there were approximately three to 4,000 Japanese living in British Columbia, with the majority concentrated in urban areas, often labeled Japantown. Within the Vancouver region specifically, the Japanese community had established itself as an economically savvy community. They were making inroads into the fishing industry and were fairly successful small business owners. A reminder, everyone, before we continue, you can find us on all your podcast listening devices as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and of course at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. If you go to our Facebook page or if you go to our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate or to make a one-time donation, while Patreon allows you to set up a regular preset price donation. So for instance, with Patreon, if you want to donate two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up extremely easily. We survive heavily on your donations. And every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page and on iTunes, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. Now on with the program. So by the beginning of the 20th century, a large Asian population lived within urban Vancouver and throughout the rest of the province. It should be noted that, generally speaking, these populations were quote-unquote camouflaged within the urban space. People operated within their respective Chinatowns and Japantowns, and while they certainly interacted with the outside white world, they were, for the most part, fairly insular communities. These insular communities helped protect their people from the aggressive and public racism of the day. Perhaps the most public manifestation of that racism was in the various anti-Asian organizations that sprung up during the period. You see, for many white British Columbians, the Asian population arriving posed serious threats to the concept of a white Christian British Columbia. Most white British Columbians believed the Asian population was unassimilable, and thus they feared that if allowed to continue, Asian immigration would pose a threat to Anglo-Saxon Christian values within British Columbia, while eventually leading to a mixing of the races. As well, there was the belief that Asian immigration posed a threat to the white working class of BC, as Asian laborers were often paid less than white workers. 
In a very famous incident, Robert Dunsmere, the man who, of course, Dunsmere Street is named after, and who was a very evil coal baron of Vancouver Island, hired Chinese workers when his own white workers went on strike, protesting the dangerous conditions within Dunsmere's mines. Even political candidates running for BC's legislature often used anti-Asian rhetoric to gain votes with the public. Now, the largest of the anti-Asian organizations was the infamous Asiatic Exclusion League. First formed in the United States in 1905, its sister organization was formed in both Victoria and Vancouver in 1907. This league was known for its public demonstrations against Asian immigration and its incessant lobbying for restrictions on Asian immigration. One of the league's public demonstrations would become the riot of 1907. So on September 7, 1907, the League held a massive rally in downtown Vancouver in response to unfounded rumors that a boat full of Chinese immigrants was about to arrive. Thousands of marchers met in the streets carrying signs such as Keep Canada White and Stop the Yellow Peril while singing songs glorifying the British Empire. They even burned an effigy of Robert Dunsmere. Now, very quickly, the angry marchers turned their direction towards Chinatown, primarily located along modern-day Pender Street, and within minutes, thousands of whites descended upon Chinatown in an angry wave. Shops were destroyed. Chinese men were beat up. Within minutes, all of Chinatown had succumbed to bricks, stones, bats, and rocks carried or thrown by the angry mob. Word of the attack on Chinatown had spread to Japantown. Uh, Japantown occupied the modern-day area of Powell Street, kind of east of Gastown and north of Chinatown, where the infamous Oppenheimer Park still exists. So with the advanced warning given from the attack on Chinatown, the Japanese community armed itself and prepared for battle. Now here is a quote from a local newspaper writing about what happened next. It was in this stronghold of the Japanese that the besieged showed fight. Armed with sticks, clubs, iron bars, revolvers, knives, and broken glass bottles, the enraged aliens poured forth into the streets as soon as the limit of their patience had been reached. Hundreds of little brown men rushed into the attacking force, their most effective weapons being the knives and the bottles, the latter of which being broken off at the neck, which was held in the hands of the Jap fighter. The broken edges of glass clustering around the necks of the bottles made the weapons very formidable, and many a white man was badly gashed about the arms, face, and neck. Armed with only stones, the mob could not stand before the onslaught of knives and broken bottles propelled by the Japanese while they made their air ring with bonsais. Many of the Japanese went to the ground as stones thumped against their heads, but the insensible ones were carried off by friends, and the fight kept up till the mob wavered, broke, and finally retreated. This was from the Daily Province, September 9th, 1907. Hold up! 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The next day, both the Japanese and Chinese communities in Vancouver prepared for what they thought would be another attack on their towns. However, cooler heads prevailed, and law and order was reestablished, though not after significant damage to Chinatown and minor damage to Japantown, not to mention the dozens of injuries to persons, though it is interesting that very few injuries were actually reported to authorities for fear of criminal charges being laid. The Vancouver riot made the front page in newspapers in Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, New York, London, England, and Tokyo, Japan. However, only three people were ever charged with any offense, and only one person found guilty. The white population of BC simply sought to sweep the incidents under the rug and forget about it. The Canadian government, however, faced a bit of a diplomatic incident. You see, the Japanese government in particular protested strongly against the actions in Vancouver. In response, the Liberal Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier sent a young deputy minister to investigate the riot and attempt to clean up the mess, so to speak. That young deputy minister was none other than future Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King. King was able to ameliorate the Japanese and Chinese communities in Vancouver with agreed-upon damage settlements. Damages for both communities totaled around $36,000. As well, during King's investigation, he found that a number of the businesses seeking claims were opium dens. After further investigation, King made a convincing argument to deal with what he saw as the rise in recreational use of opium as a narcotic. This then led to Canada's first anti-drug laws, the Opium Act of 1908, banning the use of opium in Canada for non-medicinal use. There were also some very interesting international consequences as a result of the riot. Instead of blaming the riot on the deeply embedded racism of white British Columbia, the Canadian government saw the riot as a result of unfettered Asian immigration. Further steps were thus taken to prevent people from Japan, China, and India from arriving on BC's shores. In the case of the Japanese, negotiations began between the Canadian government, the British government, and the Japanese government. The British and Japanese were actually allies at this time. The three parties sought to find a way to restrict Japanese immigration without the Canadian government passing legislation to make it so. The Japanese government, you see, feared a loss of face and an ensuing public outcry were another country so blatantly to pass anti-Japanese legislation. Thus, the Gentlemen's Agreement was founded in January 1908. This was an informal agreement between Japan and Canada, whereby the Japanese government would restrict its own people from immigrating to Canadian shores. The same agreement was also made between Japan and the United States. In the case of China, the head tax was one of the most effective methods in preventing Chinese immigration, and thus it remained at its exorbitant level of $500, effectively the equivalent 
of two years' average salary in Canada. For those from the Indian continent, who had nothing to do with the riot, they too would face restrictive immigration legislation. In 1908, the infamous Continuous Journey Act was passed, effectively saying that only people who arrived from their original point of departure without stopping, i.e. taking a continuous journey, could immigrate to the country. So people coming from Europe were able to make a continuous journey. People coming from Asia could not make a continuous journey. Specifically, this meant that no one from the Indian subcontinent could now immigrate to Canada legally, as no ships could make that journey in a continuous fashion, almost always needing to stop to refuel and resupply in China, Japan, or Hawaii. Thus, within a couple years after the 1907 riots in Vancouver, Canada had effectively stopped immigration from Asia. Racism, however, persisted against the communities already established. Perhaps this was no more clear than during the Second World War, when the entire Japanese-Canadian community was rounded up and imprisoned simply for being of Japanese descent. Japanese Canadians who were born and raised in Canada, Japanese Canadians who had served Canada in the First World War, fourth-generation Japanese Canadians, Japanese Canadians who didn't even speak Japanese, and then, of course, naturalized Canadian citizens of Japanese descent, all were rounded up and interned as a powerful lobby group representing white British Columbia convinced the Canadian government that the entire community was a threat. The Japanese internment was in many ways part of the narrative of racism that surrounded the 1907 riot. In Canada and in the United States, efforts to curtail Asian immigration in the early 20th century were successful. Through violence, intimidation, and government legislation, the white communities along the Pacific coast would hold back what they feared to be an oriental tide, threatening their way of life. As history always does, though, it simply proved these folk to be racist white supremacists, seeking to maintain an illusionary white community in a rapidly changing and globalizing world. It should be noted that for many of the non-white communities in B.C., those people persevered through deplorable racist and exclusionary environments and now are today crucial members in the diverse culture that is modern-day British Columbia. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, and at our homepage, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. And I want to thank you all for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Until next time, stay cool.